Well, uh, Happy New Year. I hope uh, your year is off to a good start. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I love about a new year is it's just a chance to kind of re-engage, to dream again about what the, uh, the next year lies in store. I don't know if you're someone who likes making resolutions or you're afraid you'll break them a week after you make them. But uh, for, for me, it's just a chance to go, man, I'm so excited about what this next year holds and maybe chart out some goals I'd like to accomplish. But uh, as the church goes, we're really excited about the year to come. There's a lot of uh, new things on the horizon that I'm uh, excited over time to introduce to you. Um, some events coming up, some uh, like a nonprofit we're starting, a bunch of things uh, are happening that I'm pretty, uh, pretty excited about. So I wanted to announce one of them so that you could get it on the calendar, February 21st. If you have your little uh, phone with you or um, some means of writing it down, February 21st, mark it, it's a Saturday, 9 to about 3 in the afternoon, 9 a.m. to about 3 in the afternoon, we'll have an event here called the Gospel for the City. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with uh, theology of the city or urban theology, uh, there's a guy named Dr. Ray Baki in Seattle who'll be coming over and talking about that. Uh, talking about our love for the city and how to engage this city with the gospel. Uh, and then uh, Dr. John Feuder, who is here in October, is going to come back and he'll be doing a session at it. And uh, then there'll be some kind of breakout sessions. Um, other people from Chicago will be doing those, as well as some local uh, individuals, pastors, nonprofit leaders. Uh, so it'll be a day just packed with uh, some challenge, some information. Uh, I would encourage you, be there. Mark it on your calendar. Uh, it's going to be a great event. And it's also going to, I think, in some way spearhead some things that we're dreaming about um, as well this year. So mark it, and uh, I'd love to have you be a part of it. And uh, we'll get you more specific details as the date approaches. This uh, morning, we're starting a new series, starting our year off with a new series. It's going to be four weeks, and it's uh, called Letters. Today, we're looking at a letter in Revelation. Uh, all four weeks will actually be out of the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation isn't a book that you enter into lightly. There's a lot to be said. But we're just going to look at the first few chapters, chapters 2, 3, 4 or so, that uh, focus on letters. We're looking at the letter to uh, Ephesus today. Next week, it'll be the letter to Sardis. The following week will be uh, Laodicea. So that's kind of uh, where we're headed over the next few weeks related to the book of Revelation. And part of my motivation or my desire for doing uh, this, I've wanted to for a really long time speak on these letters. I think for a couple reasons. One, I'm just uh, captivated by the idea that God would pause at some point to communicate specifically to the church, how, and kind of like a report card, so to speak. Like you're doing really well in these things, and here's some things that you could shore up a little bit. But he pauses. Different than when he wrote to the entire church, he pauses in this moment to write specifically to a city church. And uh, I thought that would be interesting. It gives us a chance in some ways to read other people's mail, and who wouldn't love to do that, right? So we get to read someone else's mail. Everyone loves to get mail, so that was another reason I thought it would be fun to do uh, this particular series. When I was in college, I was working my way through college, and many of you probably don't know this, but I had multiple, multiple part-time jobs. And uh, one of the part-time jobs I had was I was a mailman. That's right, I was a mailman on campus at uh, our college, and 
What I would do is uh, every day the uh, post office would drive a big truck over and just box after box after box of mail would come out of the back of the truck. It would come into our little area. We would sort it into its respective bins. And uh, each bin would go to like a different building. And so then once we got it into a bin, then we put it into different sections so that I could start my rounds. And I loved, I actually did love doing rounds. I would make my way throughout the halls. I would greet professors and hand them mail. I would talk to staff. And so it's like every day I'm just checking in with everyone that works on campus. And it was fun. I enjoyed doing it, but probably more than enjoying the rounds and, uh, and taking care of the mail, I enjoyed filling students' boxes. Uh, because students are away at college, and finally they get a piece of mail, and they're like giddy. They're excited. So like, I'd put it in their mailbox. They'd come, they'd do their little combination, pull it out, and be like, yes, I actually got mail. It's not an advertisement. It's not like some junk mail. It's actual mail, and they would get really pretty jazzed about it. And so it was fun filling their boxes, but even better than filling their boxes with real mail was filling their boxes with non-mail. That was my favorite. So here's uh, some things that we would do. Like I had good friends, and I would just like stuff their boxes with leftover magazines from other people's subscriptions that kind of ran out and weren't at the school anymore, and I would, I would shove the box full. Or uh, to other friends... That uh, just to give them a hard time, I would like stuff it full of like bedwetting brochures or things like that, right? And so like constantly like playing games with other people and uh, and filling their boxes. And uh, one of my favorites was to try to get people in awkward conversations based on what you put in their mailbox. Okay, so here would be an example. You notice over time patterns of people. They would come in at the exact same time. And they would go to, you know, the box and they would collect it. But there were some times where like a couple would come and every single day, it's the same time, same couple, they'd both go to their boxes and then they'd talk for a few minutes afterwards, talk about the mail they got, things like that, right? So uh, one, one kind of fun thing to do would be to cut out a heart, right, and put it in the girl's box so that when they both grab their mail... The girl goes, oh, and then you get to see whether the guy's going to flat out lie. Like, yeah, I put that in there. I you know, was hoping you'd find it. Or whether the guy would be like, who's putting that in your box? And it would start an awkward conversation either way, right? So I loved creating moments like that. And, uh, and so for us this morning, Revelation gives us a chance to kind of look into other people's mail, to see what Jesus communicated to the church and, uh, and hopefully begin to relate that to our own lives and to ask whether we're living in, uh, in that same kind of vein as, uh, as the writer was communicating to this church. So to do that, I want to give us a, a few things to keep in mind or a few things to consider as we go. All right. First one is this, <clears throat> that each of the letters, there's a bit of a template or a pattern to the letters. And uh, all of them are written primarily in the same way where there's a positive affirmation at the beginning, a corrective discipline somewhere in the middle, and then a motivating promise. So like the the positive affirmation would be like, hey, congratulations, you're doing really well. I'm excited. I'm commending you for what you've been doing. The corrective discipline was more along the lines of like, hey, this would be something that needs to change. That if, uh, if there was a recommendation I would give, or even a command that I would give, it would be change this thing. 
And sometimes in some letters it goes on to explain how that thing should change. And then the last part is a motivating promise that if that thing changes, or if, uh, if we see movement in your life in a particular way, here will be the result. It will be a really great experience or a really tangible way that God demonstrates himself toward the people. So that's one kind of thing to consider, that as we look at each of these letters, they, they kind of uh, follow a bit of a template. The second is that the letters were written to a city slash church. I think a lot of times when we come to the Scriptures, we think first and foremost of church, and we describe it as a little group of people that gather in a particular building at a particular time. And that all throughout the church, there, or all throughout this city of Spokane, there's hundreds of little churches that meet. And, and that is true. But the writer that was writing wrote to the church of Ephesus as a city, right? So if we we're going to put it into our context, this is a letter to the church of Spokane, of whom New Community is a part, right? But this is also for First Church of whatever and the First Baptist Church and the, you know, all the other churches, Grace and etc., etc., all of them would be reading this same letter because it's directed to the church or to the city as a whole. Okay? Third thing to consider. Every single one of these letters, God communicates this little phrase, I know. He says it seven times. In each letter he says, I know. And then he describes what it is that he specifically and intimately knows. And I think the reason this is important is, one, there's repetition, that God has brought it up again and again, but I think it also speaks to this idea that God is deeply interested in everything we do and experience. And that might be something that sometimes gets lost. We kind of let that thought slip our mind, but God, who knows each of us intimately, that knows the details about our lives more more thoroughly than anyone else, is a God who is invested, wants to know and see how we think and act and what we do, and it matters to Him. I think that's a really important thing to consider as we look at these letters. And then the fourth one is this, that we have to, or we're supposed to have, a willingness to hear and to act. A willingness to hear and to act. Throughout the Scriptures, there are statements that And specifically in these letters, there's statements that say things like this, He who has an ear, let him hear. And in these verses, it's he who has an ear, let him listen or hear what the Spirit says to the church. So he's saying, like, pay attention and listen. But a lot of times when we think of listen, or at least uh, how most of us are trained to think about it, that means we heard the information and then it registered cognitively with us at some level. And we went, yeah, I heard you. I get it. That makes sense. Every time the Scriptures speak to the idea of to hear, it doesn't mean just to listen to it and have it register. It actually means to hear equals to do. To hear equals to do. There always it demands or implies that there's action that follows what it is you heard. Right? Which is why, if uh, I say to my kids something along the lines of, did you hear me? Right? I'm not asking whether or not they heard me say that the five times before I asked them the question, did you hear me? Right? 
I'm asking, did you take what you heard, allow it to register, and then actually do something about it? Because if you didn't do something about it, then you didn't hear me, right? That's what this is saying. He who has an ear to hear and do, listen to what the Spirit says to the church. And I would maybe argue that the most relevant and significant thing that needs to happen in the church of today is a willingness of the church to hear and then act upon what it hears. Not just to understand that our actions play a role in injustice, for example, but to actually do something about that. Or not just to hear some teaching of Jesus and then go, yeah, that's good, I, I, I know that, but to actually live into it. And that's probably what I would consider one of the greatest challenges of the church today. And so, this morning, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It's also going to be on the screen here. Revelation 2, 1 to 7. It starts off by saying this, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Go back to the first slide. That's just a way of essentially saying that God is the one who has authority. That Jesus Christ is saying, hey listen, I'm writing to you. This is how he starts his little letter. I'm writing to you, but I want to remind you who's writing. The one that has authority and the one to whom you are accountable is what he's saying here. He writes, and he writes this. Okay, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, you have, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We'll skip down to the last verse that says this, To him... Or to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this morning, I want to look at this statement to the church. We're reading the church of Ephesus' mail, and we're getting a perspective of what specifically God wrote to them. And we're going to look first at the positive affirmation. He says this at the beginning, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. He's speaking primarily to the the false teachers. And he says right at the beginning, and some other translations, it's the deeds, the toil, and the endurance. But he says right from the beginning that I, I know, I've seen it, I've watched, and I know your works. Works implies service. The things that you're doing for me. That you're active in your faith. That you're living it out. He says, I know the works you've done. Your toil really speaks to the idea that they have labored to the point of weariness. So he's, you're giving everything you have in your service. You're like working your fingers to the bone to do what you've been called to do. And so I see that. I acknowledge it. I commend it. And then he says, and your patient endurance... It really carries the idea that you've been doing this for a significant amount of time. That 
That it isn't just for a week that you've been doing it, that you've actually carried the pressure and the weight of this for a period. At this point in the church's history, it would have been about 40 years since the start of the church. So he's saying to all the people of Ephesus, listen, I have seen and I commend you for the effort, the service, the fact that you've given everything you have to do it, and that you've been doing it for 40 years. You've been pouring your heart out to do this work. And congratulations, good work, keep it up, is his first initial statement. But then he responds with a corrective discipline, and we're going to spend a little bit more of our time here this morning. He says this, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So he starts off and says what probably none of us would want to hear anybody say at the start of a conversation, but I have this against you. And imagine someone comes to you and goes, hey, I just want you to know I have this against you. That's never a good good way to start a conversation. But less the least of which it being God that says that, right? So God just gets done saying, man, you've done so well in all these things, but this I have against you. And then he begins to describe that. He says, you've abandoned the love you had at first. In other versions, it says, you've lost your first love. Now that could be described in a couple ways. I've listed two of them up here. It could mean that you, um, as you loved me at first, which is the idea of chronology, or my first love, which is the idea of priority. So I'll describe both of them really quick. Chronology, the basic idea there is that you used to love me, and that happened, it was great, it was awesome, but over time, like, that subsided. The feelings aren't there, the passion isn't there, your heart is turned cold, we're kind of no longer intimate, we're just kind of like roommates. We hang out occasionally, but it's not like it used to be. So he's describing what was, and then kind of reflecting on what is, right? That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that I used to hold the most important place in your life, but I've kind of fallen down the pecking order. That if you start to look at your life, the things that you're involved in, where you spend your time, where you give or spend your resources, that your, your attention, your emotions, that that, that used to be, Captured by me, but now, if you look at it, it, it isn't. It's different. Either way you look at it, what he's saying to the church of Ephesus is, man, you guys, your doctrine, impeccable. Your service, excellent. Your effort, well done. Like, man. But your affections, something's different. Something's different. It isn't the way that it used to be. And so Jesus gives, or God gives a command here, or a statement, and He says this, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and do. Remember, repent, and do. Now remember, I think, really, is a beautiful idea Because it isn't describing what I think we often think of when it comes to feelings for God. 
that maybe you've heard in the past, you're supposed to love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, right? And you've described, maybe you've heard passionate relationship with God described. All of those are great terms. And I think sometimes we get in our mind that that means that as believers, we're supposed to, from the first instant we get up in the morning, throughout the every imaginable moment of the day, feel deep, overwhelming love of God. But I don't think that's what the writer is getting at. I think what the writer is getting at is that there should be a regular pattern and feature in your life that demonstrates you have love for God. That it just a regular part of your life, it becomes obvious that you have a passion and a love for God. Right? So my wife and I were married 18 years ago today. And we're spending this romantic morning with you guys. It's awesome. Um, But 18 years, 18 years, and I guarantee, you could ask her after the service, but I guarantee that 24-7 she does not have these amazing feelings for me, right? Because there's things I do that would probably change how she feels for me at times, right? But that's not the point. The point in a relationship, and the point that I think this author is getting at is it's not this overwhelming feeling all of the time. But if you look at the pattern of my wife's life over the last 18 years, there's this constant, regular pattern, a regular part of her life that is that she, for better or for worse, loves me. Right? I think that's what he's getting at. Now there is this continual means of effort and time and energy put into the idea that I'm not going to let my love dry up. I'm not going to let my affections be directed somewhere else. That what I want to do is have a regular part of my life be loving you, right? And I think some of that is just reflecting back. And this is why he says, remember, like, imagine when you first begin to know Jesus, that you go, Remember remember those things we did together. Remember what it was like back then. That's what Jesus is saying. Or remember that time you tried something crazy stupid because of faith. And I came through. And it was awesome. You remember those times. Very similar to the way you would describe a relationship with someone where you go, remember that? Those shared memories, those fond experiences, those times together, all of that is what I think the Spirit is challenging us to do. Remember what it used to be like. And then the second commander challenges repent. So remember those fond memories, but then repent. Now repent gets a bad rap in our culture because we look at it through the English lens. And if we understand the word in English, we understand that it basically... The assumption is to feel sorrow or contrition or to be really deeply ashamed for the state you find yourself in, right? That's what we feel like repent means. The Hebrew understanding of repent is much, much different. That God is saying, hey, we used to have this deep love, but you've kind of started to move this direction away from me. And repent just simply means to change your thinking, your attitude, your action and begin to go the opposite direction. That's repentance. You're going one way and you turn and now you're going back toward God. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. It's a very simple idea, but it's really, in this case, it's asking God to renew your love. Like, God, will you help me 
renew my love for you? Will you help me feel more connected? And it's, it's simply you're kind of heading this direction and then you reorient your life around that. That's what repentance is. So it's not calling you to, to, to be sorrowful. It's calling you to say, come back. Come back to me. And then the last statement is to do. To do what you did before. To do what you did before. And we don't know exactly what he was commanding in this particular part. We don't know if he's referring back to Acts chapter 2 where it says that you used to gather to hear the disciples' teaching. You used to gather for prayer and the breaking of bread. And you used to do wondrous signs and miracles. Like all those things that describe the early church. It could be that he's saying, remember those things? Do those. Again, get back to that. You've strayed from that. Or it could be like there's some things that we used to have in our relationship that aren't there. And I encourage you to like do those again. And so I'm going to take that particular approach this morning, and I want to encourage you with three ways to kind of put this doing into action. Okay? So here's the first one. Hang around with people who are passionate about God. Hang around with people who are passionate about God. I have this uh, particular problem, and maybe you have the same one. But when I'm around people who are incredibly passionate about something, it rubs off on me. Like I, I, One of the things I love about small group is that there are so many different people with unique perspectives and unique interests and things that they absolutely love. And I get to ask them questions about it and I get to hear about it. And then I go, man, I really love that thing too. That's awesome. I get excited about it, right? If you're around people who are passionate about something, you can't help but get passionate about it. And I think the same thing is true of God. That when we're around people who talk about God, love God, relate with God, hear from God. That, that's the one that I love. Is like when people say to me, man, I heard from God this week. And I'm like, tell me about it. I want to hear about it. And I want to hear from Him the same way. Right? Or, or, I mean, you can just imagine what it would be like to continue to be inspired by people who go, you know what, I did something stupid for God this week and it was awesome. Right? And then you go, I want to do something stupid too. Right? It's just the way it is. We get excited. So be around people that are passionate. Second, change your routine. I would encourage you to change your routine. Uh, people describe relationships and say that if you're kind of in a lull with a relationship, that what you need to do is mix it up. Change it a little bit. Some would encourage you to, to go back to what you did at the very beginning of your relationship and maybe go back to a familiar place or spend some time doing the exact same activity that you did when you really loved each other feelings-wise so deeply, right? But I think anytime you can experience new Things, new experiences, new ventures with someone, and that someone in this case being God, the more you get excited about that person. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, maybe uh, meditation. Maybe you've not really done meditation before. Meditation would be simply thinking on a verse again and again. Or another example would be, this is one that I've kind of been meditating on, um, what's something new that fascinates you about God? So think about that. So like, go, oh, man, God, this, this thing 
about you that I didn't know about until a week ago that fascinates me about you, and I want to think on that more. Like, what does that tell me about you and who you are and how you relate to us? And so just meditate, think on God and think on His Word. Another would be maybe to read your Bible differently. Some of us get in a habit of doing it the exact same way. And uh, maybe what you need is to change it up a little bit. I have a friend who was trying to like, read through the Bible every year. And he realized that he was just like reading it just to check it off, but then realized, like, I'm not remembering a bunch of it because I'm just trying to check off the box. And so instead he said, you know what? I'm going to take one book per month and just only be in that book and just read and read and remember and meditate on it and be challenged with it and journal and write questions. And so he's changing the way he's approaching it. Maybe for you, you need something on your phone that just reminds you to read and then it takes you to a passage that's prescribed for the day and you get to think on that. Maybe it's changing the way you pray or you converse with God. I know for me, uh, and you probably can't relate to this at all, but I get in the middle of a busy day and then I just forget the prayer. I forget to have regular time of communion with him or to talk with him or to ask his help. or to, I just get going and I forget. So maybe, I just recently I um, put an app on my phone. It used to be uh, just a website, but now they have an app. It's called Echo Prayer. Has anyone done that before? Echo Prayer is a phenomenal little tool, but essentially you input prayer requests and then you decide when you want to pray for those things. And it could just be a one-time event or it could be reoccurring. And then it'll just shoot you a text. And like any of us do, we're automated at this night. Ding. Okay, let me look. Oh, right? It's just a routine. I see it. But now, instead of it being a text, it's a reminder. Like, you need to pray for that thing. And here's what you said you were going to pray for with it. And begin to just remind yourself to come back to the Lord. And there's all kinds of helpful tools. But the idea is simply change your routine. Try something new. Get, in, get into it and uh, allow that to change your affections. And then the third and final one is uh, risk something. Try something crazy. Be adventurous. Right? Anytime I try something where I, it would be impossible for it to work apart from God, that's when I feel most alive in my relationship with God. Right? I also feel most scared, too. I'm not going to lie. There, and there are times I talk myself out of doing that. Like, I'm just going to go for the safe route right now because I know that humanly this will get done if I just decide to do that. But we're talking like, if God doesn't show up, it doesn't happen kinds of things, right? Try one of those. Because as you try it, it does something to you that changes your affections for God. Charles Spurgeon, writing way back in the day, this was out of a sermon he preached on Revelation 2. He said this, When we first loved the Savior, how earnest we were. There was not a single thing in the Bible that we did not think most precious. There was not one command of His that we did not think to be like fine gold and choice silver. But now our religion has lost its luster. The gold has become dim. Some of the actions which we performed when we were young Christians but just converted, when we look back upon them, seem to have been wild and like idle tales. I love that last part. Some of the actions which we performed when we were young Christians, when we first 
came to know Jesus, when we first understood this relationship, would seem to us to be wild and crazy at this point. Like that we actually lived into something new because we had no idea what we were doing and it was crazy. And I think, man, that's part of what it is to be back to that place. Remember what you did at first, Jesus is saying. Like remember you actually absolutely trusted me and you would try things that you wouldn't normally try. No human would try in his own mind or her own mind, but you did it. I mean, think about Peter. Like, no one's going to walk on water. Nobody thinks to themselves, if I get out of the boat in the middle of the storm, I'm going to be fine. But there was this, like, thing, this love, this, this motivating and compelling, like, idea that he's like, you, you said I could come to you? Okay, I'm jumping out of the boat. And I'm going to walk, and it's going to happen. And he doesn't think twice until he does, and then he falls in, right? You get the idea that there's something about trying to be adventurous in faith, to actually have faith. And Jesus even says, I'm trying to remember the exact passage, but in Hebrews, that's where it is, it, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Right? And I think he's inviting us to that again, to step out in faith. And then uh, this passage or the letter ends with a motivating promise. He says this, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise with God. And really, it's, it's a reference back to Adam and Eve to say that to the one who perseveres in this, to the one who overcomes, the one that actually pursues me like this, then it's going to kind of be like when I ate with Adam and Eve. Like they were eating of the tree and like we were doing that together and we were walking. And we were with one another and that's what it will be like for you. And we'll have eternal life to do it. That's what he's promising. So my challenge this morning um, to all of us is to renew again that love. To refocus. To remember. To re- repent and to do. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to read Psalm 107 or a portion of it as a closing prayer and then I'll pray a little benediction over us. It was, I think, a helpful reminder that God's love is so strong for us in the midst of our desire to love Him. I'll read those that are lighter and then you just read the bold. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from distant lands, from the dark places and dire need, from ignorance, from hard hearts, and from bondage. Then we cried to the Lord in our trouble, and He delivered us from our distress. He led us by a straight way until we reached a city to dwell in. Let us thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For it satisfies the longing soul, the hungry soul that He fills with good things. Father, we thank You as it says here, for your steadfast love, for your wondrous works to us, that you satisfy our souls 
God, may we, in recognizing and remembering your deep love for us, a love that the writer of Ephesians describes as wanting us to know the depth and the width and the height and the absolute magnitude of your love. God, in our understanding and remembering of that, may it draw us back once again to to turn, to come to you, to be invited anew into a deeper relationship. God, we need you to do that. It is you that inspires us to love you. It's you that empowers us to do it. And so we ask that you would turn your face anew to us, that you would remind us of all that we've been through together, and that you might um, just excite us again to know you. I pray that um, we would, this week, live into that love in very tangible ways. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Go in love.